Here we have the lovely Hadassah or Esther. We all like to think we're special, don't we? It's very important to us that someone loves us and cares for us, that we're not lost leaves blowing around in the playground of life. But what if your whole nation is special? What if you know that God has gone out of his way to choose your fellow countrymen and you to be his special people? Should make you feel pretty good about yourself, pretty secure. But then what if being a friend of God's makes you into a target? What if your whole nation becomes a target and extensive efforts go into shooting down that target? Well, that's been the situation for the Jewish nation. In our relatively recent times, we've seen the Nazis make a concerted effort to eliminate the whole Jewish nation. That's called genocide. But it wasn't the first time, was it? There have been battles along the way with lots of ites for the Jewish people. There have been the Amalekites, there have been the Hittites, and so on. There have been invasions by the Babylonians and mass deportations off to Babylon. And there have been a really massive attempt at genocide in the book of Esther, which we're looking at this morning. You've got the king of the enormous Persian Empire, which extends from India to Ethiopia, and he's issued a decree allowing all Jews to be exterminated. And if you think, that was a big deal for the Jewish people, then you are not mistaken. And the story of how God enabled them to survive and thrive over this dreadly, this deadly threat is commemorated to this day every year, and it's called the Feast of Purim. We've just finished studying this book in the Wednesday night Bible study. And we've learned far more than can fit into one sermon. So we'll just flag a few of the big points of the book this morning. And one of the main points is the origin of the dastardly villain in the story. And he is Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite. Did you know this villain should never have existed? He was only there because King Saul failed to properly follow God's orders. You see... Back in the day, before King Saul, the Israelites had recently escaped from Egypt and they were wandering around in the desert on the way to the Promised Land and the Amalekites decided to get rid of them. And back at Exodus 17 is where we see the story of this battle against the Amalekites. It's the one where wherever Moses held the staff up, they were winning and when the hands were lowered, they were losing. The Lord was not very pleased with the Amalekites. So after that battle, he gave these instructions to Moses in Exodus chapter 17, verse 14. And the Lord said to Moses, write this in the book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly wipe out the memory of Amalek and his people from under heaven. Well, some got away and they were back in Saul's time. And so Saul got these instructions in 1 Samuel 15, verse 3. Now go and attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. 
But at the end of the battle, the king, Agag, has been spared. And the soldiers have got lots of booty. And Samuel had to step in and off the king. And Saul lost God's blessing and eventually his kingship for not following orders. In the, come down now to the book of Esther and Haman the son of Hamadatha is an Agagite. In other words, he's a descendant of that king that Saul didn't destroy, King Agag of the Amalekites. And so this enemy has survived to have another go at the Jews. The takeaway from that process for me is that there's some things in our life that God puts a finger on at some stage and says, get rid of it. Get rid of that. And sometimes we get rid of most of it, but not all of it. And this story of Esther is a reminder that if you don't get rid of all of it, at some point it can sneak back and bite you when you're not watching. But Esther is also a story of the fact that despite yet another attempt at genocide at getting rid of his chosen people, that they are his chosen people. And he will work through world affairs to protect them. You see, in the book of Esther, there's no mention of the word of God, as I've mentioned. And maybe that's because this book wants to show us that God does work in the secular world as well. In where momentous events transpire without even talking about God. And even though religious language is not employed, God is still God and God is still doing his stuff there. And the book also reminds us that there is a covenant. There's an agreement between Israel and God. The agreement where he will be their God and protect them in the direst of circumstances and they should respond to that love. And as we hear and look at the story in a bit, we're going to be amazed at God's timing. A timing which enables a Jewess to be selected from thousands of candidates to become queen. How would you just pick out one if it wasn't for God being in it? The timing of, of, of how the king gets to read the story of how Mordecai has foiled a plot against the king the very night before Haman's going to come in and say, look, I want to hang Mordecai or impale him on my 75 foot high Bizarre. The timing that the arch-villain is in the court at that precise moment when the king wants to recognise the service to him and that leads to Haman having the indignation of having to personally parade Mordecai around telling how the king honours him. I'm just really amazed at how God's going to, uh, to Mordecai at this point, uh, to Haman at this point. He's <laughs> just going back at you, mate. And then there's the, the, the perfect timing. The king comes in from the garden at the moment. Haman's on the queen's couch and saying, please, please, uh, don't, don't uh, do away with me. And it looks like he's trying to molest her. And then there's the perfect timing. They cast the lots to find a time to destroy the Jews, but it's so far in advance that the Jews are enabled to have time to do another one, which counteracts the first one. If the time wasn't was surer, they wouldn't have had time for a response. But here, God's perfect timing, there is timing. And then be amazed at the way God promotes somebody who has got no 
particular power, Mordecai, it makes him the second most important guy in the kingdom with an active agenda to promote the welfare of the Jews. And be amazed how he also promotes a young Jewish girl to be queen of the empire. How God turns the balance of power in a flash without going through the normal processes in order to show that he is keeping his covenant promise to protect his chosen people. And, and think about this. Did Esther choose to be beautiful? No, that was a gift to her from God. Did Mordecai work his way up through the ranks, prove himself to be amazingly gifted and talented? No. God let him be in the right place at the right time to hear about the plot. God moved then the king to decide to promote him without any assessment of whether he actually had the ability to be second in command in the kingdom. So, although God is not specifically mentioned, if you can't see the hand of God in protecting his covenant people in supernatural ways in this book, then you're not really looking carefully enough. So, to further set the scene, we do have a picture of King Xerxes. It's not exactly a photo. It is preserved there in stone. So those gentlemen who've got beards, you might take note. This is the way it should really be done. <laughs> they had a bit of a beard culture going on in those days, didn't they? Uh, and here's a picture of artist representation of what the city would have looked like. And just in the background, you can uh, see a bit of river in there. And by the way, uh, Xerxes is the Greek name of this guy who they say his Persian name is Ahasuerus. So if you're wondering, what's going on? Ahasuerus, Xerxes, same guy. Uh, the king, of course, has the best view. That's the next one. And the Iranians have reconstructed a fortress from that time. They've got uh, the main one. Here's a couple of views of this from there. Bit of an overview, you go in a bit closer and look in the courtyard, see what it looks like in there. And then if you had a drone, you could take the next one and pop over the top. And that's, as far as we know, accurately still there from the day, Susa, the capital of that place. And uh, it does have access to the water, so there's a bit of a picture on the next one of the, what, the access down at the river. And to this day, there exists a tomb for Mordecai and Esther. There's a picture of it from a distance. We'll walk in a bit closer, look through the door, and you can see down there there's a the, uh, couple of covered coffins. We're getting a bit closer. And finally, we see which one is actually Esther herself. Just to confirm the historicity. And then before we start looking at the, the Word of God, let's uh, get a sense of that throne room on the next one. The sense of the, the colour, the space. You'll see the height of people in relation to the building. Very tall, majestic place. There's Esther just waiting there. Hopefully the king will see her. And yes, he does see her. And she comes in and she touches the tip of his... Uh, scepter, but see how the height of everything and the colours are pretty much how it would be. 
just to give us a bit of an idea of what's going on back there. And then at the end of the story, in the last one there, there they are, uh, all in power, king and queen, doing their thing together. So let's uh, go to the Bible and we'll just hear it. I'm reading from the message. I like the way Eugene Peterson takes the idea and you might find it good to go through in your version or you might like to just have a listen because it'll be pretty well the same but just slightly different. So this is a story of something that happened in the time of Xerxes. You know, the Xerxes who ruled from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all. He ruled from his royal throne in the palace complex of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his officials, his ministers, and they had the military brass of Persia and Media also there, and they had all the princes, and they had the governors of the provinces. And for six months, that's a pretty decent-sized party time, isn't it? For six months, he put on exhibit the huge wealth of his empire and its stunningly beautiful royal splendours. And at the conclusion of this uh, six months, he threw another week-long party for everyone living in Susa. That's the national capital. And the party was in the garden courtyard of the king's summer house. The courtyard was elaborately decorated with white and blue cotton curtains tied with linen and purple cords to silver rings on marble columns. And the couches, you guys would be sitting on silver and gold, silver and gold couches, arranged on a mosaic pavement of porphyry and marble and mother of pearl and coloured stones. Drinks served in gold chalices, and each chalice was a unique, one of a kind, bespoke, I think is what they call it nowadays. And the royal wine flowed freely. He was a generous king. And the guests, they could drink as much as they liked. King's orders, and they had waiters at the elbow waiting to refill the drinks. And meanwhile... Queen Vashti, she's off in a, throwing a separate party for women inside the King Xerxes' royal palace. So on the seventh day of the party, the king, high on wine, as I guess you would be after drinking for seven days, and he ordered the seven eunuchs, who were his personal servants, and uh, I won't say who they were because you'll never remember them. So bring in the queen. Bring in Queen Vashti, resplendent in the royal crown because they wanted to show off the beauty to the guests and the officials, because she was extremely good-looking. But Queen Vashti refused to come, refused the summons delivered by the eunuchs, and the king lost his temper. Seething with anger over insolence, the king calls in the councillors, all of them experts in legal matters, because it was a king's practice, you see, to consult his expert advisers. Those closest to him were Kashena, Shethar, Admatha, Tashish, Merish, Masera and Memukan, the seven highest ranking princes of Persia and Media, the inner circle with access to the king's ear. And he asked them, what legal recourse do we have against Queen Vashti for not obeying King Xerxes' summons delivered by the eunuchs? Well, Memukan spoke up in the council of the kings and princes, Hmm, you see, it's not only the king that Queen Vashti has insulted, it's all of us. Leaders and people alike in every last one of King Xerxes' provinces. The word's going to get out. Did you hear the latest about Queen Vashti? 
King Xerxes ordered her to be brought before him, and she wouldn't do it. When the women hear about it, they'll start treating their husbands with contempt. The day the wives of the Persians and Mede officials get wind of the Queen's insolence, they'll be out of control. Is that what we want? A country of angry women who don't know their places? So, if the king agrees, let him pronounce a royal ruling and have it recorded in the law of the Medes and the Persians so it can't be revoked that Vashti is permanently banned from King Xerxes' presence. And then, let the king give her royal position to a woman who knows her place. When the king's ruling becomes public knowledge throughout the kingdom, extensive as it is, every woman, regardless of her social position, will show proper respect to her husband. As I was reading this, I think the Lord put in my head, ladies, don't ever underestimate how deeply you minister to a man when you offer him respect. And gentlemen, don't ever underestimate how deeply you bless a woman when you show her love. So the kings and the princes liked this suggestion, though. And the king did what the Mimikan proposed. He sent bulletins to every part of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, to each people in their own language. Every man, that was before Google Translate, had to have people who would translate it. And every man is master of his own house. Whatever he says goes. So that was it. Later, when King Xerxes' anger had cooled and he was having second thoughts about what Vashti had done and what he'd ordered against her, the king's young attendants stepped in and they got the ball rolling. I said, let's begin a search for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint officials in every province of his kingdom to bring every beautiful young virgin to the palace complex of Susa and to the harem run by Hegalo the king's eunuch, who oversees women. Now he'll put them through their beauty treatments. And then let the girl who best pleases the king be made queen in place of Vashti. Well, the king liked that advice, and he took it. Now, there was a Jew who lived in the palace complex in Susa. His name was Mordecai. He was the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. He was a Benjamite. His ancestors, you see, had been taken from Jerusalem with the exiles, carried off with King Jehoiakim of Judah by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and into exile. And Mordecai had reared his cousin Hadassah, otherwise known as Esther, since she had no father, no mother. And the girl had a good figure and a beautiful face. And after her parents died, Mordecai had adopted her. Now, when the king's order had been publicly posted, many young girls were brought to the palace complex of Susa and they were given over to Hegai, who was the overseer of the women, and amongst them was Esther. Well, Hegai, he liked Esther, and he took a special interest in her. Right off, he started her beauty treatments. He ordered special food, he assigned seven personal maids from the palace, and he put her and her maids in the best rooms in the harem. But Esther didn't say anything about her family and racial background because Mordecai had told her not to. And 
meanwhile, every day Mordecai strolls beside the court of the harem to find out how Esther's getting on. Any news? How's she going? So each girl's turn came into to King Xerxes after she had completed the 12 months of prescribed beauty treatments. Don't think I'm going to complain about daughters being too long in the bathroom anymore. <laughs> 12 months. 12 months. Six months of treatment with oil of myrrh, followed by six months with perfumes and various cosmetics. And when it was time for the girl to go into the king, she was given whatever she wanted to take with her. When she left the harem for the king's quarters. And she'd go in there in the evening and in the morning, she'd return to a second harem overseen by Shazgaz, the king's eunuch in charge of the concubines. And she never went back again to the king unless the king had taken a special liking to her and asked for her by name. So when it was Esther's turn to go to the king, Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as his daughter, she asked for nothing other than what Hegai, the king's eunuch in charge of the harem, had recommended. And Esther, just as she was, won the admiration of everyone who saw her. She was taken to the king in the royal palace, and it was on the tenth month of the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of the king's reign, and the king fell in love with Esther far more than any of the other women or any of the other virgins. He was totally smitten by her. He placed a royal crown on her head and he made her queen in place of Vashti. And then he gave a great banquet for all his nobles and officials, Esther's banquet, and proclaimed a holiday for all the provinces and handed out gifts with royal generosity. On one of the occasions when the virgins were being gathered together, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. And all this time, remember, Esther had kept her family background and her race a secret as Mordecai had ordered. But Esther still did what Mordecai told her, just as when she was being raised by him. And on this day, with Mordecai sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, Two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance had it in for the king. And they were making plans to kill King Xerxes. But Mordecai heard of the plot and told Queen Esther, who then told King Xerxes and gave credit back to Mordecai. And when the thing was investigated and confirmed as true, the two men were hanged on a gallows. And this is all written down in a logbook kept for the king's use. Now we're about to enter the, the villain. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, making him the highest-ranking official in the government. So he's a guy who's worked his way up. And all the king's servants at the king's gate used to honour him by bowing down and, and kneeling before Haman, because that's what the king had commanded. Except... Except Mordecai. Mordecai wouldn't do it. He wouldn't bow down and kneel. And the other king's servants at the gate asked Mordecai, Hey, why did you cross the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him about this, but he wouldn't listen. So then they went to Haman to see whether something shouldn't be done about it. And, and, 
And Mordecai had told them, you see, that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw for himself that Mordecai wouldn't bow down and kneel before him, he was outraged. And meanwhile, having learned that Mordecai was a Jew, Haman hated to waste his fury on just one Jew. He looked for a way to eliminate not just Mordecai, but all the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And so in that first month, the month of Nisan of the twelfth year of Xerxes, the poor, that, that is the lot, was cast under his charge to determine when was the propitious, that's the best day and the best month. And it turned out, I wonder if this is the origin of num unlucky number 13. This was the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. And then Haman spoke with King Xerxes and said, you know, there's an odd set of people scattered through the provinces of your kingdom who don't fit in. Their customs and ways are different from everybody else. And worse, they disregard the king's laws. They're an affront and the king shouldn't put up with them. If it please the king, let orders be given that they be destroyed. I'll, I'll pay for it myself. I'll deposit 375 tons of silver in the royal bank to finance the operation. The king slipped a signet ring from his hand, gave it to the Haman son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, arch enemy of the Jews. Go ahead, the king said to Haman. It's your money. Do whatever you want with this people. So they brought in the secretaries and they wrote it all down and sent all the message out everywhere. Chapter 4. And when Mordecai learned what had been done, he ripped his clothes to shreds. And he put on sackcloth and ashes and he went out into the streets of the city crying out in loud and bitter cries and came only as far as the king's gate for no one dressed in sackcloth was allowed to enter in the king's gate. And as that order was set out, in every province there was a loud lament amongst the Jews. There was fasting, there was weeping, there was wailing, and most of them were stretched out on sackcloth and ashes. And Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was stunned. And she sent fresh clothes down to Mordecai, but he wouldn't take off his sackcloth, and he wouldn't accept them. And so Esther called in Hathak, one of the royal eunuchs, who the king had assigned to wait on her, and she told him, go down to Mordecai and get the full story of what's happening. And so he went to Mordecai in the town square in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him everything that had happened to them. And he told him the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to deposit in the royal bank to finance the massacre of the Jews. And Mordecai also gave him a copy of the bulletin that had been posted in Susa, ordering the massacre. So he could show it to Esther when he reported back with instructions to go to the king. Oh, this is it. He gave instructions that she should go to the king and intercede and plead with him for her people. And Hathak came back and told Esther everything Mordecai had said. And Esther talked it over with Hathak and sent back a message. Everyone works, who works for the king here and even the people out in the provinces know that there is a single fate for every man or woman who approaches the king without being invited. 
It's death. The one exception is if the king extends his gold scepter, then he or she may live. And it's been 30 days now since I've been invited to come to the king. Ooh. Well, when Hathak told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai sent her this message. Don't, you, don't, don't think that just because you live in the king's house that you're the one Jew who will get out of this alive. If you persist in staying silent at a time like this, help and deliverance will arrive for the Jews from someplace else, and you and your family will be wiped out. Who knows? Maybe you were made queen for such a time as this. Well, Esther sent back her answer to Mordecai. Go and get all the Jews living in Susa together. Fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, neither day or night. I and my mates will fast with you. And if, if you will do this, I will go to the king, even though it's forbidden. And if I die, I die. And Mordecai left and carried out those instructions. And three days later, chapter 5, three days later, Esther, dressed up nice in the royal robes, took up a position in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's throne room. And the king was on his throne facing that entrance. And when he noticed Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased to see her. And the king extended his gold scepter in his hand, and Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king asked, And what's your desire? Queen Esther, what do you want? Ask, and it's yours, even if it's half my kingdom. Well, if it please the king, said Esther, let the king come to, with Haman to a dinner I've prepared for him. Well, get Haman at once, says the king, so we can go to dinner with Esther. And so the king and Haman joined Esther at the dinner she'd arranged. And as they were drinking the wine, the king said, Now, what's it you want? Half of my kingdom isn't too much. Just ask. And Esther answered, Here's what I want. If the king favours me and is pleased to do what I desire and ask, let the king and Haman come again tomorrow to the dinner I'll fix them. And then I'll give you a straight answer to your question. Haman left the palace happy, beaming. And then he saw Mordecai sitting at the king's gate, ignoring him, oblivious to him. And Haman was furious with Mordecai. But he held himself together and he went on home and he got his friends together with his wife Zeresh and he started bragging about how much money he had, his many sons, got ten of them remember, and all the times that the king's honoured him and his promotion to the highest position in the government. On top of all that, Queen Esther's invited me to a private dinner she's going to give for the king and me, just the three of us. And she's invited me to another one tomorrow. But I can't enjoy any of it when I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. His wife must have been a friendly lady. And all the friends said, well, build a gallows, 75 feet high. And first thing in the morning, speak with the king, get him 
to order Mordecai hanged on it and then happily go to the king with dinner. I don't know if I'd be happy <laughs> about having done something like that, but he liked that idea and had the gallows built. And here's God's perfect timing. But that night, the king couldn't sleep and he ordered the record book, the day-by-day -day journal events to be brought and read to him. And they came across the story there about the time that Mordecai had exposed the plot of Big Thana and Teresh, the two royal eunuchs who guarded the entrance and who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. And the king said, well, what, what great honour was given to Mordecai for this? Nothing, replied the king's servants who were in attendance. No, nothing's been done for him. The king says, is there anyone out in the court? And Naaman had just come into the court to talk to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows that he'd built for him. And the servant said, well, Naaman's out there. He's waiting out in the court. Bring him in, says the king. And when Naaman comes in, the king says, what would be appropriate for the man who the king especially wants to honour? Naaman thought to himself, oh, he must be talking about me. Honouring me, who else? So he answered the king, for the king delights to... Oh, so he answered the king this way, said, For the man the king delights to honour, do this. Bring a royal robe that the king has worn, and a horse that the king has ridden, and one with a royal crown on its head, and then give the robe and the horse to one of the king's most noble princes. And have him robe the man whom the king especially wants to honour him, have the king lead him on horseback through the, through the city square, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man whom the king specially wants to honour. Well, go and do it, the king said to Haman. Don't waste another minute. Take the robe and the horse and do what you've promised to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Don't leave out a single detail of the plan. So Haman took the robe and the horse and he robed Mordecai and he led him through the city square proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man whom the king especially wants to honour. And then Mordecai returned to the king's gate but Haman fled to his house, thoroughly mortified, hiding his face. When Haman had finished telling his wife Seresh and all his friends everything that's happened to him, his knowledgeable friends who were with him and his wife Zeresh says, If this Mordecai is infected you, your bad luck has only just begun. You don't stand a chance against him. You're as good as ruined. And while they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived. They hurried Haman off to the dinner the Esther had prepared. And so they are. King, Haman, dinner with Queen Esther. And at the second dinner, while they are drinking with the king again, he asked, Queen Esther, what would you like? Half my kingdom? Just ask, and it's yours. And Queen Esther says, well, if I have found favour in your eyes, O king, and if it please the king, Give me my life and give my people their lives. 
we've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, sold to be massacred, eliminated. If we'd just been sold off into slavery, I wouldn't even brought it up. Our troubles wouldn't have been worth bothering the king over. And King Xerxes explodes. Who? Where is this? This is monstrous. An enemy. An adversary. This evil Haman. Haman was terror-stricken before the king and the queen. And the king, raging, left his wine. He stomped off into the palace garden. And Haman stood there pleading with King Asla for his life. You could see that the king was finished with him. And he was doomed. And as the king came back in from the palace garden into the banquet hall, Haman's groveling on the couch of which Esther's reclining. And the king roared out, Will he even molest the queen while I'm just around the corner? And when that word left the king's mouth, all the blood drained from Haman's face. And Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, Look over there. There's the gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai, who saved the king's life. It's right next to Haman's house, 75 feet tall. And the king said, Hang him on it. And so Haman was hanged on the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai. And the king's hot anger cooled. And on that same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the arch enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king because Esther had explained their relationship. He's my uncle, you see. And the king took off the the signet ring which he had taken back off Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther, she appointed Mordecai over Haman's estate. And then Esther spoke again to the king, falling at his feet, begging with tears to counter the evil of Haman the Agagite and to revoke the plan that he had plotted against the Jews. And the king extended his gold scepter to Esther, and she got to her feet and stood before the king, and she said, if it please the king and he regards me with favour and thinks this is right, if he has any affection for me at all, let an order be written that cancels the bulletins, the, the plan of Haman, son of Hamadath the Agagite, that cancels the, those plans to annihilate the Jews in all the Jews' provinces, all the king's provinces. How can I stand to see this catastrophe wipe out my people? How can I bear to stand by and watch the massacre of my own relatives? And the King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, I've given Haman's estate to Esther and he's been hanged on the gallows because he attacked the Jews. So, well, now, go ahead. Write whatever you decide on behalf of the Jews and then seal it with the signet ring. Because an order written in the king's name and sealed with the signet ring, that's irrevocable. And so the king's secretaries were brought in and Mordecai dictated and wrote it under the king's royal order. And in, chapter, in verse 11, 13, 
the king's order authorized this. He authorized the Jews to, in every city to arm and defend themselves to the death, killing everyone who threatened them or their women and children, and confiscate for themselves anything owned by the enemies. And the date set? The 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and then that message was sent out everywhere. And in the meantime, Mordecai walked out of the king's presence wearing a royal robe of violet and white, a huge royal crown, a purple cape of fine linen, and the city of Susa exploded with joys because for the Jews it was all sunshine and laughter. They celebrated, they were honoured, every province, every city where the king's bulletin was posted, the Jews took to the streets and celebrated. And not, this is great, not only that, but many non-Jews became Jews. <laughs> now it was dangerous not to be a Jew. And on the 13th month, they defended themselves, they finished their enemies. They took no plunder. There's a good reason for that, because we won't look at that today. And Haman's sons were publicly hanged, and in the capital they had another, another day of doing the same thing. And we'll go right to the end of the, right to the last chapter. King Xerxes imposed taxes from one end of his empire to the other, but for the rest of it, King Xerxes' extensive accomplishments along with the detailed account of the brilliance of Mordecai, they're all written down. But verse 3, Mordecai the Jew ranked second in command to King Xerxes. He was popular amongst the Jews and greatly respected by them. And he worked hard for the good of his people. He cared for the peace and prosperity of his race. Let us pray. The big picture we see today, Lord. We have special care for God's chosen people, but now we are adopted into your kingdom as well. And we have special prayer, special care for those of us who have accepted your offer of salvation. You will work in the big schemes of life to protect your people. In this uncertain times, let us not be worried. In these uncertain days, let us be confident in you. And in these uncertain times, let us fill our mind through your word with your great glory, your greatness, your power. You are the God who loves and protects his people and grants us an eternal inheritance. And so we praise you and we worship for you for that and we thank you from the bottom of our hearts and we seek to be those who will tell others about that. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. <laughs>